one of the uh, prerequisites, if you're going to be a superhero, is that you have to have a secret identity, right? All the superheroes have a secret identity. And um, some of them are fairly well protected. I mean, you, you know, they, they wear full body costumes, they wear masks, and so it's a little bit hard to find out who it really is. The one that always, to me, is the most ridiculous of all the superheroes is Superman. I mean, think about it. Uh, he, he successfully pulls off uh, this disguise with so many people, even people that are closest to him, that see him every day, they're around him all the time, and they, they don't get that, that Clark Kent is actually Superman when all that distinguishes Clark Kent from Superman is this. A pair of glasses and a tie. I mean, think about it. It's like, I'm Clark Kent. No, I'm Superman. I mean, he goes from, you know, glasses and a tie to then jammies with underwear on the outside and, and a cape. And it's like, oh, it's, it's Superman. Oh, it's just Clark Kent. I mean, wow. Poor Lois, Lois Lane. It took her forever to look through the glasses and realize they're one and the same. You know, she fawns over Superman and idolizes him and then Clark Kent's just Clark, and she treats him terribly. You know, and poor Clark. I mean, man, all, all to, to put up with that. I mean, he needs some serious therapy, you know. Uh, this dual identity thing must have taken its toll. But s- people closest to him didn't recognize that, that Clark Kent was really Superman, and everything that Superman was, really, that's the same as Clark Kent. He was that person. And they didn't see it, and they didn't see him, because they saw what they wanted to see, Right? Lois Lane only had eyes for Superman, and so she, she saw only what she wanted to see and missed Clark Kent entirely, missed the fact that Clark was Superman because she was just completely blinded by what she wanted to see and what she imagined. And you know, that's how it really has always been with Jesus. All through his ministry, it was that way. People had the very God of the universe in front of them and totally missed him. And it wasn't just people out on the fringes. It was his disciples too. They had a really hard time understanding who it was they were really following. You know, who this, this man was. I mean, over and over they, they saw these fantastic displays of his divine nature and power. And they would stop though and say, who is this man? What kind of man is this? And the answer is, of course, well, he's not just a man. Uh, he's the God man. And it was just always right over the head, all the time. Uh, Even those closest to him that spent the most time with him, that knew him, or you would think would, know him the most intimately, still missed what was right in front of their face because they saw only what they wanted to see. And they looked at him through the glasses of their own agenda or their own imagination or their own wishes, what they wished he would be and wished he would do, and they saw him through that. And when he didn't match that, they were thrown into a frenzy. They didn't know what to do about it. And that's what makes it so important for the very big question that Jesus asked of them close to the time he went to the cross. There was a very big question he asked of them, and it's probably the most important question he asked And the thing that we have to understand is that same big, very important question is continually asked. It's the same question that he asks of every person 
on planet Earth in every age? And to find this question, I want to have you look with me at Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. And we'll start in verse 13. As we see this very big, very important question that Jesus asks of those closest to him, and it's the same question he asks of you, of me, of everyone. Matthew 16, 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? We've been at this a while, guys. We've gone through all kinds of different towns and villages. There's a following. What do you hear people saying? Your your ears are close to the ground. What do people say about me, the Son of Man? Verse 14, they replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Okay, all right. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, got to love Peter, first to speak, often with sandal in his mouth, you know. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responded, verse 17, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Yes, that's right. Blessed are you, Peter. You got it right. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. In other words, Peter, you're right. That's the right answer. That is who I am. And you wouldn't know that unless my Father revealed it to you. You wouldn't know that to be true unless it came from above. And this is a really good moment for Peter. Because, you know, there's, there's all this different talk going on about Jesus, who he is, what he is. And none of the other disciples spoke up, and maybe that's because Peter just beat him to the punch, or maybe they were just kind of stalling. Maybe there was some silence there. That's how I picture it. It was kind of like, uh, um, <laughs> and then Peter says, well, I know who you are. I don't know about these guys, but I know who you are. You're, you're the Messiah. You're the promised one. You're the one we've been waiting for for centuries. You're the prophesied one. You're the divine Messiah. You're the son of the living God, which means you are very God. I recognize your, your divinity. I recognize that you are the Savior that we've all been looking for and waiting for. Really good moment for Peter, right? But it didn't last. Poor, poor Peter. And as you look at Peter and his life and his, his frequent um, getting his, you know, his foot in his mouth and, and jumping the gun, really you can see yourself because we're all like that in some degree and at some point. And the reason it doesn't last is because within the same dialogue, within the same discussion, he goes from recognizing Jesus' divinity, the fact that he is the Savior, to being called blessed by, by Jesus. Blessed are you, Peter. He goes from that to then what happens in the next part of the passage. Look at verse 21. From then on, Jesus said a few more things. He said, yeah, that's right. That's a great truth, Peter. That is the truth. And I'm going to build my church on that truth. Not even the gates of hell will prevail against my church that I build around the truth of who I am. And and so he says a few other things. Then verse 21, same conversation From then on, from that moment on, Jesus began to then point out to his disciples 
that it was necessary, essential, for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and be raised the third day. So he says, because what you said is true, Peter, because I am the Messiah, the one that was prophesied, the one that was supposed to come into the world, because I am that Messiah, here's what that means. Here's the result of me being the Messiah that you recognize. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be killed. I will die. But I'll also rise again. All because that's what's necessary for your salvation. He, he's trying to get them to understand. All that, all that is necessary for me to give you life, to make you justified before my Father. That's why I'm here. That's the whole point of my being here. But look at what happens. <laughs> Peter goes from, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Hallelujah, you're here. Praise you to this. Peter took him aside. Hey, Jesus, come here a second. Come here. And began to rebuke him. Now, who did Peter recognize Jesus as being? The Son of the living God. God in the flesh. The Creator of all things. Almighty God. Yahweh. That's what was wrapped up in his confession of Jesus. And and the divine Messiah. And yet, he suddenly feels qualified to actually rebuke and correct and judge him. (laughs) Really, Peter? Yes, really. He began to rebuke him and he says this, Oh, no, Lord. This will never happen to you. In other words, what he's saying is there, I don't think so. (laughs) I'm not going to let this happen. Jesus, you're not going to do this. You might be thinking that's what you're supposed to do. This might be your plan, Jesus, but... I don't no no not going to happen. Mm-mm. And and you have to you have to just picture in your mind the the response of Jesus before he actually gives a verbal response. I I just see him looking at at Peter like you know really Peter and then he says this verse twenty three Jesus turned and told Peter in response to that and in response to him rebuking Jesus get. Behind me, Satan. My, how things can change in the space of a few minutes. Goes from, Peter, blessed are you. This truth is is exactly right. My Father has given it to you. Good job to get behind me, Satan. Why does he say that? We, We see it in the rest of his statement. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Why? Why is Peter being a hindrance to Jesus? Because... You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. And any time we focus on our own concerns, our own agenda, our own purpose, our own plan, above and beyond or or over or even on the same level as God's plan, which is always perfect, we will be a hindrance. We'll be a hindrance to him. We'll be a hindrance to ourselves. We'll be a hindrance to other people. We will be a hindrance. And the reason he says, 
get behind me, Satan, and connects that with you have in mind the, the plans, the agenda, the thoughts of man, of carnal, fleshly man, not of God. That's always what Satan is about from the very beginning of, of the time before he fell. Why did he get cast out of heaven? Why did Lucifer become Satan, the great enemy of God and the great enemy of the people of God? Because he said, God's plans, God's uh, working out of everything is not good enough for me. I can do better, and I'm going to try. I'm going to ascend to the throne. I'm going to go higher than God is. He's not cutting it for me. I have this agenda and this ambition, and I'm going I'm to see it happen no matter what, even if it means usurping God from his place of rule. And he's been at it ever since. And so we see the traces of the enemy's plan and the enemy's uh, character and nature in ourselves every time we want to pursue our agenda, our plans, what we want in front of, before, above, what God wants, above His agenda, above His plans. Anytime we pursue me, myself, and I, and my own vain ambition, instead of pursuing God's plan, His will, His perfection, then we could just insert our name here. And no doubt Peter and the others found it very easy to have their plans elevated. I mean, think about what was going on at this point. Jesus was at the height of his popularity. He had been ministering now for three years. He had had crowds of people following him everywhere he went. Anytime someone saw or heard that he was at some place, they told everybody else and everybody went to find him. He was always swamped. He had to deliberately plan moments to get away from the crowd just so he could think, just so he could rest, just so he could pray. And... Being human, Peter and the disciples, I think, probably really enjoyed that. I think they probably enjoyed that status. Hey, we're with Jesus. We're part of his inner circle. Peter, James, and John, they were, they were his innermost circle even apart from the twelve. So at this point, it kind of was good to be around Jesus. He was popular. He was doing miracles. People were, were ready to, to put him on the throne of Israel. And so they had some notoriety too. And putting it in a modern context, you know, if you have this great big organization and you're, you're kind of at the height of your fame, none of your advisors, none of your close circle are going to tell you to go somewhere where there's a risk that you have that all thrown away. You know, they're, they're going to say, no, no, that's, that's not a good marketing move to go where you have opposition and hostility. We want to keep you where everybody loves you. We want to keep you at the height of your popularity. We want to keep this momentum going. And maybe that's what Peter was thinking. I don't know. Whatever it was, Jesus saw through this rebuke, and he saw the heart, and he says, Peter, you need to be careful. Even though you got it right, who I was, you're still missing the point, Peter. You're still not seeing me as I am meant to be seen. You're still not seeing the real me. You're not understanding my purpose here, Peter. You need to look closer. And you need to understand you're pursuing your own agenda here. You have in mind the things of, of the flesh and of, of just carnal man. That's not what I'm about, Peter. You need to check yourself. And Peter's debacle here... His, his rebuking of Jesus and being called out on it really gives us this warning. It shouts this warning to us. 
be careful. Be careful. This is the warning to all of us. Be careful. Because once you recognize Jesus as the Savior, like Peter did, he shows us, and it's true for all of us, that it's still easy to miss or mistake his purpose. Still easy to do. We can recognize intellectually, we can believe even in our heart that Jesus is the only Savior. He's the Savior we need. He's the only one. We're not going to find another Savior. We can recognize that. We can believe that. We can agree with that. We can internalize that. And yet it's still incredibly easy for us as we go through life after becoming a Christian to miss entirely or to mistake His purpose. And we can do it again and again all throughout our lives. What that means for us then as we are on guard against that is that we need to see Jesus as He is. Not as we want Him to be. There's a big difference there. We need to see Jesus as He is. Who and what He really truly is. Not just what we wish He were or what we want Him to be, or what we imagine Him to be. Often, that's how we approach Him. You know, I, I love you, Jesus. I'll sing praise to you, Jesus. I'll give to you, Jesus. I'll tell people about you, Jesus. So long as you match my picture or image of you. So long as you come through in the ways I, I really want you to, or the ways I think I need you to. And, and we can limit our Creator and Savior and Sustainer to this, this little box, this little nice, neat package. And we can define Him according to our terms if we're not careful. And we can have this view of Jesus that suits our fancy and our whims and our preferences, but in reality are nothing at all like the real Jesus. And so it's very important to be on guard against that. It's very important to constantly see Jesus as He is. And how do we see Him as He is? Through His Word. On, on every page of Scripture, even in the Old Testament, and then on through, especially to the New, we see the picture of Christ again and again and again. We see His character. We see His heart on display. We see His convictions. We see his nature. We see his desire. We see his will. And as he told Philip, as we see that in him, we see that in the Father. Over and over again we see it. And when we see Jesus as he is, when, when that happens and as that happens, as we continually pursue that mindset. Jesus, let me see you for you. I ask you for yourself, Jesus. Please let me see you and not this, this fake image that I've built up in my mind of you. Not what culture says you're like. Let me see you for who and what you really are. As we make that a, a constant prayer and as we pursue that, when we see Jesus as he is, then we will see the Savior we need, not one of make-believe. And the Savior we need and the Savior we want are often miles and miles and miles apart. So many people want a, a safe, comfortable, easily defined, predictable Jesus that fits in every little box they can conceive and contrive. But as, as the beavers told 
the children from our world as they entered into Narnia and the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, when they, they find out that the person they're being taken to is Aslan and they find out that he's a lion, Lucy speaks up and says, Oh dear, is he quite safe? And Mr. Beaver says, Haven't you heard anything Mrs. Beaver said to you? He's a lion. Of course he isn't safe. He's not tame. But he's good. My friends, that's exactly true of of Jesus, our, our great Savior. He's not safe. He's not tame. He's not containable. He's not predictable. He's not even completely definable. But he is good. Always, always good. So, seeing the real Jesus, that's what's so important for us. And it's the same question that we have to ask ourselves over and over that was asked of the disciples. Who do you say I am? Who do you really believe and think and know me to be? It's the question that we need to ask of ourselves and invite the Holy Spirit to ask of ourselves so that we will constantly be brought back on track of pursuing the real Jesus, not our own version of Him. And that then begs the, the question, a, a very logical question, okay, if we, if we need to see the real Jesus, if we need to pursue Him, all right, then, then what is He really like? That's the natural question then, right? If I need to find out what Jesus really is all about, if I need to see Him and pursue Him, what is He really like? Now, we could go on and on and on about all the different uh, ways that Jesus is like and the, the different examples of the real Jesus. I mean, we would be here for a long, long time indeed, a very long series and all of that. Um, but I just want to focus on, on a couple very major aspects of his character and of who we see him to be throughout his word and what the word says about him. Uh, first of all, I, I want to have us look at John 1 and verse 14. John 1, 14. Here's what John wrote about Jesus in his prologue of his gospel. We talked a little bit about this a couple weeks ago, about the Word and what it means that Jesus existed far, far beyond and before He came as a baby in Bethlehem. Here's what John says. The Word became flesh. The Word is synonymous with Jesus, the Son, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed, we saw His glory. The glory as the one and only Son from the Father. And here's the part I really want you to to catch. Full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Then later on in the same passage in verse 17, John provides a contrast. He says this, For the law was given through Moses. Moses was the the bringer of the law to the Jewish people. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So what that shows us is that in Jesus, we see the embodiment of absolute grace and absolute truth. Perfect grace, perfect truth, Always working together perfectly. 100%, 100%. Never lopsided in that. And we see that all through his ministry, all through his earthly ministry. One of my favorite examples of that being true, of him being full of grace and truth, being all about grace but all about truth at the same time, is in the woman at the well. I love that story, the woman at the well. 
Here's this, this woman who's coming to draw water at the middle of the day, the hottest part of the day. No one else ever did that. And she, she did so probably because of her shame, because of her reputation, because of what she was known to be. And here's Jesus, a Jewish man, sitting down at the well, and he looks over at this woman who is not just a woman, but a Samaritan woman to boot, and starts talking to her. And she's taken back. She's like, what? are you really talking to me right now? I mean, you're a man, I'm a woman. Right, right away, there's taboo. Men and women didn't talk to each other one-on-one alone. That just didn't happen. And, and she said, and you being a Jew and me being a Samaritan, that's, that's strike two. That's another you know, there's a double whammy there. Not only is this a man and a woman having a private conversation, but a Jewish man and a Samaritan woman never happened. Samaritans were viewed as, as these kind of um, uh, less than human beings. I mean, they were, they were these, these uh, uh, half Jewish, half, half something else, and, and they, they weren't viewed as being truly uh, God-fearers. I mean, they were viewed on the same level as demons. That's why the Pharisees often called Jesus a Samaritan and said, you have a demon. They've looked at him. I mean, they were garbage to the Jews. They were half-breeds. They weren't worth their time. And here's Jesus deliberately talking to her. And he talks about living water, you know, and, and that he can provide living water so she never gets thirsty again. And she's thinking, oh, good, I don't have to come here to the center of the square and be laughed at and ridiculed and mocked. And my reputation doesn't have to get paraded around. Yeah, give me that water. And he says, no, you're missing the point. Long story short, she keeps trying to derail the conversation to other things because she's convicted And he says, tell you what, go and call your husband, and I'll give you this water. And she says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus drops the bomb. He says, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had multiple other people in your life. You've been married. You've had other men. You've had had other husbands. And now the person you're with, living as if he's your husband, isn't your husband. You're living in complete, total sin. And she's like, wow, you must be some kind of a prophet. And then she, she hurries on and moves the conversation away from her own, her own sin. And he keeps bringing it back. And at the end of this story, she is, is so convinced that he's the Messiah, that he's the Savior. She goes, and she doesn't care anymore about what people think of her. She goes to the very people that probably spent their time ridiculing her lifestyle. And he, she says, come, come with me. You've got to come find this man who told me everything I've ever done. Even though he doesn't know me, I think he's the Messiah. And so they come, and Jesus talks to them. And they put their faith in him. And then he hangs out for two more days. And, and all these people in this village come to faith in Christ. It's beautiful. But you see on display grace and truth. He doesn't skirt around the issue of this woman's sin, but he does so in a grace-seasoned manner, like a master chef that gets the blend of spices just right. He seasons everything he says to her with grace while still speaking the truth of her situation and her need. And he does it over and over. He did it with a rich young ruler. Oh, I, I, I look at this man before me that's desperate to find meaning and fulfillment. And the, the text says he loved him as he looked at him. And he said, my son, there's one thing you still lack. 
You're, you're held captive by your many possessions. You're held captive by your riches. Cut the chain. Let go of all the things that have you and come and follow me. And the rich young ruler ran away. He didn't say, oh, you know what? You're, you're good. I, I love you and therefore I'm not going to tell you something that's going to hurt your feelings because I love you too much. Yeah, you're good. You're good. Just come on. No, he said, because I love you, rich young ruler, I'm going to tell you this thing you need, even though you're not going to like it, even though it's not comfortable, even though it's stepping on your toes, you got to hear this. He did it with Nicodemus. He did it with the woman caught in adultery. As she is, is brought before him and, and they uh, are trying to trap him and trying to stone this poor woman. And Jesus says, after he calls those people out on their sin, he looks at this weeping, shaking woman before him and, and he says, where are your accusers? They're gone, Lord. No one is here to condemn you? No. Then neither do I condemn you. So he he gives her grace and he gives her love, this woman caught in the act of adultery. But then he also says something of truth to her. And he says, because I love you, because you're, you're receiving my love now, here's what you need to do. Go and sin no more. In other words, leave this life of sin behind. I'm not going to condemn you. I'm going to show you grace. I'm going to show you love. But it's got to result in action. It's got to result in repentance. Grace and truth over and over, all through Jesus' ministry, all through his interacting with people. And he's the same way now, today, with us, because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what we see in Jesus in the pages of Scripture is what we will always see in Jesus. Aren't you glad for that? Aren't you glad he's so consistent? And aren't you glad he responds to you and treats you with grace and truth? He's the only one that will always be the perfect container of both. We, as humans, tend to, to be lopsided. We go to one at the expense of the other. You know, we'll either really major on the grace and exclude speaking the truth, or we'll be so heavy-handed on the truth that we forget the grace. We do that all the time. Think about how it is as parents. Inevitably, in your home, one of you is the grace guy, one of you is the truth. Inevitably. That's how it works. Either mom is really heavy on grace, oh, it's okay, or the dad is really heavy on that. You know, I mean, and sometimes we, we cross and we intersect sometimes, but my point is all throughout our human relationships, we tend to do that. We focus on grace, 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 grace to the exclusion of truth or truth, 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 and we forget grace. But Jesus is always both. That's such good news because that means he loves you enough to tell you what you need to hear to change. He loves you enough to point out your weakness and your failures and your sin so that he can deal with it, but he always does so in a loving manner. He loves you enough to tell you the truth, and as he's telling you the truth, he does it in a loving way, full of grace. So that's the first aspect of the real Jesus that we need to make sure we remember and pursue, grace and truth, always together in perfect balance and perfectly on both sides. Well, the other thing that I want to make sure we understand about Jesus is his unbelievable matchless humility. It's incredible. His humility. The, the humility of Christ, the, the servanthood of Christ is something that you will not see in anyone else or in anything else. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. 
Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Here's what Paul says. He says, adopt, that means pursue and take on to yourself, go after the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, in other words, very God, Jesus who, who was complete divinity, just like the Father, just like the Holy Spirit, separate but sharing in the same divine nature as the Father and as the Spirit, existing for all of eternity. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God, which He had, which was His, by nature, as something to be exploited. Totally opposite from any human example. Whenever human beings get power, whenever human beings have something special, our natural tendency is to exploit it and to exploit others with it, right? Not so with Jesus. He had equality with God, but he did not consider that equality as something to be exploited or, or used to his own advantage, manipulated. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. Think about this. The Creator God who made all of humanity existing in total divinity and perfection for all of eternity, willingly took on to Himself, added to His divinity, our humanity. Mind blown, right? At least it should. I mean, your mind should just... Very God, Creator of all things, taking on to His divinity our humanity. And when he had come as a man, verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Jesus said of himself, I want you to follow my example. I want you to serve other people. Because even me, the Son of Man, the Messiah, God in the flesh, came not to be served, but to serve. And then right before he goes to the cross, he gives this beautiful, amazing picture of that where he stoops down and actually washes the dirty, smelly feet of his disciples to show how much of a servant he is. And he says, go and and do likewise. Service without anything expected in return. Absolute humility, submission. We see all of that in Jesus, even though he is the very one who holds all things together, like we looked at two weeks ago, who by the word of his power keeps everything functioning and moving and working, and at one word could cause everything to come crashing down by letting go of all the atoms and molecules that he's holding on to. Everything, all of life, all of the universe would just cease to be. That's who Jesus is. And yet, he emptied himself of that. He, he humbled himself to the lowest point imaginable, making himself obedient, totally sold out, all in with the Father's will and plan, even to the point of death on a cross, where he, the sustainer of all life, actually held the matter of the cross together that he was crucified on. As he's being nailed, he's keeping those nails structurally together on the molecular level. And yet, he allowed himself to go through it. All all for you. All for me. 
all because of our need for the Savior that we have. My friend, I don't know completely, not for every one of you anyway, where you are in your relationship with Jesus, where you are in your walk with Him, what you know about Him, what, what, your, what your image of Him is. I, I don't know. Maybe it's, it's the horrible, uh, classic European painting of Jesus, you know, just this gentle, um, you know, white-skinned, blue-eyed, feathery hair, just couldn't hurt a flea uh, image of Jesus. Maybe that's your image. Maybe you've defined him just by him as this, this baby in the manger, and you don't see him as the Lord of all creation. That's the real Jesus. Yes, he came as a baby, but he is anything but safe and predictable. Remember the, the cleansing of the temple? Making a reed and driving out all the sellers and kicking over the, the animal cages? I mean, that's the real Jesus too. But at the same time, he's loving enough to reach out and touch a leper that no one else would dare come close to, and he touched them. We see all this incredible togetherness of of so many things that we normally see apart in the person of Jesus. There's no one like him. And Jesus, in his soul main, major purpose came to give His life so that you would have life. So that you could know this real Jesus for eternity. So that you wouldn't have to wonder, what is God like? You wouldn't have to wonder, what is, what is my purpose? You, you would have all that seen and realized and explained in the person of Jesus. And you could be with Him forever. Knowing Him, walking with Him, hearing from Him. Knowing His love in full measure. And He, he came and he, he went up to the cross he died, and then he rose again, all so that that would be true for you, all so that you would be redeemed and justified before the Father when no effort on your part could do that and no other person could do that for you. That's the real Jesus. And as we're going to see next week, because of him being who he is, when we come to him in total surrender, receiving him as our Savior and our Lord, he makes unimaginable things true of you and me. Because He is the absolute reality. In Him we find our reality. We're going to talk about that next week. Would you pray with me? If you're here today and you don't know this Jesus, Jesus is not real to you. You've not ever come to the point where you've really surrendered your life, your heart, your mind to Him, believing He is who He says He is, believing He is the only Savior, the Son of the living God, believing that He is what you need for your salvation, there is no better time than right now because you were here for this message. If you are here today and you've not received Jesus as your Savior, as your Lord, I really believe the reason you came in these doors is so you could hear about Him today. So that hopefully, just in a little glimpse, I mean, that's all we did today, was just show a very tiny glimpse of the person of Jesus. But I I pray and I hope that it was enough to remind you or to show you for your first time your absolute need for Him. And if that's you, there's no big magical formula to coming to Him and actually knowing Him now, to actually having Him as your Savior and Lord You just need to talk to Him right where you are. You don't have to even do it out loud. Just in your heart, in your mind, 
but to him, directed toward him, and say, Jesus, I believe. I believe you are who you said you were. I believe with Peter that you are the Savior that I need. You're the Son of the living God. And you, I believe you did come to this earth, and you came for me. And I believe you, you went to the cross, and I know you did that to forgive me of my sins. Jesus, I ask that you, you take my life, that you make me yours. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. Let me know you for who you are. I ask you for you, Jesus. I ask you for you, the real you. And I give you myself. If you truly mean that and, and express something even somewhere, somewhat close to that in your own words, from your heart, the Bible says that Jesus hears, that he receives that, and that you are saved. And that you begin from that point on to walk with Him in reality throughout all of the days of your life here and then into eternity as you leave this life. I pray that was, I pray that was what one of you or two of you or three of you, however many are here that don't know Him yet, that that's what you did. And if so, I would love to talk with you afterwards. I'd love to take you a little farther in what it means now. Just whatever you need to do with this Savior, don't let another day go by where you haven't come to him, seeing him as he is, and surrendering to him with all of your life. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that in your word we see Jesus. We see the real Jesus, your son, in in all of his splendor, in all of his glory, in all of his character, in all of his nature. We see it in your word. We don't have to guess. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to chase after faulty images or, or versions of him. We can see and know the real Jesus through your living word. Thank you for that. And I pray that if there is someone here that has not yet come to the real Jesus, surrendering themselves to him, that today would be the day where they, they do that. I pray that that took place even right now in these, in these moments. I pray that that is exactly uh, what is now the reality for, for people here. For those of us who have walked with Jesus for years, who know him already, I pray that you would just continually remind us of who he is. Help us to ask that question of ourselves. Who are you saying I am in this moment? Who are you saying I am in this day? Who am I really to you right now in these choices you're making? Remind us of who Jesus really is and help us to keep abandoning false images and versions of him. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.